Amen. If you'd stay standing for just a moment for our Old Testament reading, you'll remember, or for anyone who's not been here in a couple of weeks, we're going through some of the Psalms this summer. So Quinn got us started with Psalm 1, 2, and 3, and for the next um, several weeks we'll be continuing, not in order. Um, but intentionally trying to catch psalms from several of the different genres of psalms. And I think you'll see that played out over the weeks to come. So today's psalm is Psalm 13. Psalm 13, to the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But... I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that in the same way that the rain and the snow come down from heaven and don't return but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and bear fruit, So as we look and hear your word now, you would be faithful to do what we cannot do on our own and grow fruit in our lives. Change us, I pray, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I think there's a sense in which the Christian life in its entirety is a call to peace, security, joy, rock-solid certainty, and all those other descriptors which we generally would consider desirable. So when we come to Christ, when he calls us to himself, he says things like this, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Lo, I will be with you always. And often here at Grace, though we didn't this morning, we sing the hymn, Jesus, Savior, Pilot, Me. And one verse in particular, I think, captures this aspect of the Christian life. If our lives are a sea and we are on a ship, There are times when the sea is smooth, bright, shining with the stars of night, and the path of our ship is ablaze with the light of halcyon days. I I didn't know what halcyon meant before we sang that song, but I looked it up. It's a good thing. Those are good days. Who among us would deny this, right? All of us who have come to Christ have seen his glory. Ruined sinners... Though we all are, we've been reclaimed. Hallelujah. What a Savior. 
On the flip side, there's an equally true sense in which the Christian life is an invitation into the very heart of Christ, which is a heart full of suffering, wilderness wandering, being forgotten, being misunderstood by those nearest to him, being attacked, groaning deeply in prayer. Remember, Christ also said, whoever would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life in this world will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The same hymn also captures this reality. Another verse, our life's sea at times is tempestuous. Unknown waves before me roll, hiding rock and treacherous shoal. Also didn't know what a shoal was, but hitting it would not be pleasant. Who among us would deny this? Even in coming to Christ, we continue to experience the effects of the fall. As David read from Romans 8 this morning, even in coming to Christ, we remain a part of this fallen creation that groans. We groan inwardly as we wait. And we groan for many reasons. We wake up in the morning once more exhausted to the urgent, unending pressures of another day. How long, oh Lord, will this go on forever? We've been witnessing a brutal war where children, even children of believing parents, are orphaned or maimed by man-made killing machines that fall from the sky on their bedrooms or their hospital rooms. How long, oh Lord, will this go on forever? And not only halfway around the world, in our own town, regular gun violence, how long, oh Lord, will this go on forever? And I hope what you're seeing is that Psalm 13 is our guide as we grapple with the suffering that is part and parcel of the Christian life in a fallen world. This is a prayer for those who groan. And notice in the first two verses, four times the question is repeated. How long? How long? How long? How long? It led Spurgeon to refer to this psalm as the howling psalm. But before we jump in, I want to anchor it, if you will, with me in the last three weeks, specifically Psalm 1 and 2. You'll remember Quinn described those psalms as the double door into all of the psalms. So they're in the beginning for a reason, many have seen. Psalm 1, blessed is the man, is an individual psalm. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage, is a, is a cosmic psalm, a psalm on the level of nations. So if you'll take an example from Google Earth, Psalm 1 is zoomed in on an individual house, and in moving from 1 to 2, entering into all the psalms, you rapidly zoom out until you see all of Google Earth with, with stars in the background. And the implication is that the psalms serve double duty. 
So many of them were written as an individual prayer from one person at a specific time in history, and they can all be prayed and sung corporately as the cry of the people of God throughout all of history. This is certainly true of Psalm 13. It's shown in the title. Notice first, to the choir master. So in other words, hello, worship leader. Use this one to teach the people how to sing and pray. And then secondly, of David. He wrote it on some specific occasion when his soul was groaning. That's all we know. We don't know when. We don't know where. And that's okay. Because as we look at it today, we look at it both as a prayer for us to pray individually in our own affliction, in our own groaning, and as the God-ordained language for his people, all his church, who throughout history until glory will be a groaning people, waiting eagerly for our full redemption in hope. Psalm 13 teaches us that in times of extreme sorrow, when God seems to have forgotten his people, Believers can pray raw and honest prayers, urgently presenting their requests to God, even as they praise him for his faithfulness. And we'll look at it in the following way. It's six verses. It divides well into three parts, two verses each. If you'll look, some of your Bibles even show this with a space after verse two and after verse four. So verses one and two will be the complaint. Verses 3 and 4 will be the plea, and verses 5 and 6 will be the praise. The complaint, the plea, and the praise. So first, the complaint. As we've already said, four times here, David calls out, how long? And the Hebrew for this question is disjointed. It's choppy. It's as though it comes from one who's so shaken internally that he can't even put his words together. It's railing language. And perhaps you've been there before, so shaken and anguished that you can't even seem to make sense of your words. This is the prayer of one in dire circumstances. And in verses 1 and 2, we have at least three clues as to what caused David to call out in this way. First, and perhaps the most significant of the reasons is that he's been forgotten by God. In verse one, he calls out to God, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? Each night before the girls go to bed, I tell them the prayer of Aaron from number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And in the Old Testament, the idea of the shining face of God, the, the lifting of his countenance upon us is a sign of his favor, his friendship, his blessing. And here, when David says, will you hide your face? He's he's saying the negatives of that. God, where's your friendship? Where's your favor? Where's your blessing? How long will you fail to make good on your promises to me? Now, we know that David knows. 
that God never actually turns his face from his people. We don't need to sit him down and say, God promises he will never leave you or forsake you. David knows that. David gives us elsewhere some of the most beautiful language of God not forgetting his people. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is why when brothers and sisters feel forgotten from God, in the desert place, in the dark night of the soul, it, it will rarely do to sit them down and say, those feelings aren't true. That's not what David's doing here. The point here in verses 1 and 2 is that as David looks around in his life, his circumstances, his inner man, all of that is coming to him as though God has forgotten him. So he's in the desert. God seems to have withdrawn himself. There's a vertical problem between him and God. But it's not only vertical. It's internal. Verse 2, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? And this phrase, take counsel in my soul, implies that David has scoured his options. He's already done the pros and cons list. If you will, he's searched the internet deeply and sifted through all the options in front of him, and all of that was a futile effort which ended in sorrow day after day. So his despair is vertical. His despair is internal. Knots in the stomach. Anguish. And it's horizontal, involving others. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And we don't know the details here, but there's a real enemy in view, perhaps Saul, or as we heard last week, maybe Absalom, but that's besides the point. The main point here is that throughout the Old Testament, when the enemy exalts over the people of God, this is almost always a sign of God's judgment. In Deuteronomy 28, when God's demanding obedience of his people, he says through Moses that if you disobey, then the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. So as David says this, it's as though God's judgment is being poured out on him. So David's complaint in verses 1 through 2 is this. I feel forsaken by God. I've looked around. I've explored all my options. I've tried my very best to get myself out of this one, and that all ended in gut-wrenching sorrow that won't go away. Then God, to complicate things more, those who have no regard for you seem to be trouncing all over me. How long will you let this go on? Forever? And keep in mind, this is not only David's complaint. This is the complaint of God's people throughout history. How much longer, God? We're groaning here. We know this is not the way it's supposed to be. We long for unity with you, but we can't seem to get your attention. 
Our best laid plans for life and happiness get frustrated over and over and over, and we can't seem to get them off the ground. Evil seems to have the upper hand. And the remarkable thing is that this language, this prayer towards God is part of our scripture, and it's approved as helpful language for the people of God to use in prayer. This is the faithful way to groan, For where else can we go? What do you do with the crushing news? With the nagging relational frustration that has lasted for years? When as a grown adult, you still feel unsettled in many ways with questions about direction? When evil seems to clearly have the upper hand It seems that when these type of emotions arise, we have at least three options. So we can keep them within, trying to do the keep the beach ball under the water effect. It will pop up. We can dump them on another in grumbling. And of course, there's time to share with one another, but we must be careful not to grumble. And the last option, the one that David shows us here, is to groan them to God in prayer. And for just a minute, what's the difference between grumbling and groaning? I think an example will help. And I don't think I'm the only one that can identify with this. So our bodies age. I'm still young, I think, though... I'm older now than I was before, and I'm beginning to feel new and unusual sensations in my knees when I run. At least once I may have said, ah, I'm getting old. And I hate to break it to you, but even those who are young, you too are getting old. And there's at least two ways to say I'm getting old, right? It can be said with hope, or without hope. It can be said God-wordly, or it can be said God-lessly. How about this? I'm getting old. How long, O oh Lord, until I put on my heavenly dwelling, that imperishable body that will be raised in glory? Or, I'm getting old. My life will never be what it once was. I used to run like a cheetah, now I run like a sloth. I used to soar, now I can't get off the floor. So the question is, are we like Abraham looking forward to the city whose streets are gold, or are we like the Israelites grumbling because we're thinking of the meat pots in Egypt? I don't think I have it all sorted out, but it seems here that groaning in this psalm is a hopeful God-word prayer, whereas grumbling is a hopeless, godless protest. And I think you could work this out in any situation which is causing you grief in your life. Are you grumbling without a hopeful thought of God, or are you groaning in prayer with hope to God? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's still verse 2. So 
verses 3 and 4 are the plea. Uh, The groan of complaint turns into a right now plea. You'll notice David says, light up my eyes. I think this phrase can be lost on us. It's helpful to see where else it turns up in scripture if we are to see what David's asking here. So this phrase, light up my eyes, also pops up in 1 Samuel 14. It seems that that's how David is using it here. Um, The story there, if you'll remember, Saul and his son Jonathan and all the Israelite army are heavy in battle with the Philistines, and the battle is not going well. The Philistines are prevailing over the Israelites, and so Saul, in his desperation, puts an oath on all the army, and he says, anyone who eats before night or before we start to get the upper hand in the battle, upon him is pronounced a curse. So his son, Jonathan, who's off fighting Philistines, doesn't hear this. He walks into some wooded area and he sees some honey there and he reaches out and takes some honey and eats it and all his soldier friends are (gasps) aghast. Jonathan, don't you know the oath? Jonathan, what oath? Your father pronounced a curse on you for eating. And Jonathan says, my father was wrong for doing that. It would have been better if we'd all eaten. Did you not see the way my eyes lit up when I tasted this honey? If we'd all eaten, we could have fought all the harder. My eyes lit up. In other words, I got the stamina that I needed. It was, it was the gel packet on my marathon run to keep me going. I needed those calories to keep fighting the fight. My eyes lit up. So here, David is saying, God, give me a new vigor. Give me a stamina for the fight. Give me the fuel that I need amidst this affliction. Give me light in my eyes. Even as he's about to ask for relief, which he will do, he first asks for strength to continue through the suffering. And he asks this, you'll see, of a personal God. O Lord, my God. We're encouraged to bring the threatening consequences we ourselves fear before a personal God in honest petition. Could this sound like this? Lord, answer us and hear us, for we fear what will become of our city if violence goes on unabated. How long? Or perhaps more individually, Lord, it's the middle of the night. The baby's crying again, and we're at odds with one another. How long? Or, Lord, family dynamics are messy. I've tried hard to love, but I don't know how, and I'm genuinely afraid for the years to come. How long? And at this point in the psalm, end of verse 4, it's worth noting, there's no indication that anything has actually changed. Right? David is not writing this by candlelight in some dark cave, and then a messenger busts up in there and says, It worked! Your enemies are defeated! He didn't set his pencil down and wait a year until he got an answer to his prayer, to his plea, and then picked it up again in verse 5. 
Yet, in a way, between verses 4 and 5, everything changes, for his prayer moves from plea to praise. You'll notice that little word that starts verse 5, but. And this but, this is the hinge. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. So after focusing on his problem and his plea, he lifts his eyes to that rock-solid reality which is outside of himself, which is above his circumstances, which is more firm than his eyes can see, a solid foundation on which to stand God's steadfast love. And I want to pause on that word for just a moment. Steadfast love. What is two words in our English Bible is one word in the Hebrew, and it shows up often in the Old Testament. Even in the room, I think you'll see it's translated in a variety of ways. Love, mercy, loyal love, steadfast love. So how do we get a sense of what this means? If you'll stick with me just for a second, I'd like to show one defining place where it pops up. And I think by looking at it in that context, we get a sense of what this steadfast love is. So back in Exodus 34, God has just miraculously and graciously, for no merit of their own, saved his people out of slavery. He's led them to the foot of the mountain. They have pledged themselves to him, saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then God gives the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up on the mountain in the cloud. And while he's up there, the people wholeheartedly follow after the Lord with all of their soul, right? No, they commit spiritual adultery against God and his covenant. They build, they worship this golden calf and commit the sin of idolatry. They, we, are unfaithful to a gracious and perfectly faithful God. Moses comes down, he sees what they've done. He smashes the Ten Commandments because the covenant has been smashed. And he says, I'm going to destroy every last one of them. Well, Moses pleads with God. God relents. The covenant is renewed, and God begins that renewal ceremony by saying this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. Ralph Davis is helpful here. Israel's act was like a bride at her wedding, making a commitment to her husband, and then that very night, going out and sleeping with some other guy. It's that audacious. It's that rebellious. And yet the Lord is rich in steadfast love to that kind of people. This steadfast love shouldn't exist. It's too good to be true. The Israelites, we, should have been destroyed. 
That's what we deserved. But we were shown mercy, an undeserved mercy, a kind of mercy mixed with grace, love. But more than love, a a sticky love, an unending, never-leaving love, a divine disposition of favor that won't relent, as many of us have read with our children in the Jesus Storybook Bible, a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And in verse 5, David looks up and sees that. And even though he's still waiting for a deliverance, he's waiting for the answers that he's asked for in verses 1 through 4. He rejoices in verses 5 and 6 because he remembers who the Lord is and who he is in the Lord's hands. Spurgeon, once more, helpful here. David's heart was more often out of tune than his harp. He begins many of his psalms sighing and ends them singing. So before we're done, what's the application? After you honestly pour out your complaints and your pleas, do you just kind of mechanically start singing in praise whether you feel it or not? Perhaps, if that's a takeaway, that's not a bad place to be. Many saints throughout history have witnessed to the soul-transforming power of song, especially in the middle of the night, in the valley. So using this psalm as a model, or even praying the exact language of of it itself, is, is to be commended. But I think as we go, the takeaway is much broader than that. We as Christians live in a fallen world. The seas of life are not always still and bright. Perhaps, more often than not, they're tempestuous with hidden and dangerous rocks nearby. This is not how the world is supposed to be and we are right to groan because of that. Psalm 13 affirms our longing and asking, how long until this is no longer the case, Lord? The scriptures encourage us to do that, and Psalm 13 reminds us, as the church, that until we see the Lord in glory, we will be asking, how long? But we are not to stop at verse 4 becoming kind of the Eeyores of the church, borderline grumblers. Our groans must be groans that lead to praise because right now God's steadfast love has redeemed us. So we praise. But on the flip side, we don't divorce our praise from our groaning We're not skipping happy-go-lucky individuals who naively deny the suffering of the world. Verses 5 and 6 only come after verses 1 through 4. And the psalm sticks together. Brothers and sisters, Christians, we're called to be praise-filled groaners.
if you will, kind of groany praisers. So child of God, keep groaning. And with David and all of the church, may your groans lead to praise. Let's pray. Father, you are the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We lift our eyes and we look to that and we pray that as we do, as we see that though we should have been destroyed, you had mercy on us, that you would melt our hearts and change us, that we might have hope in the midst of our afflictions, even as we honestly pour them out to you. Make us those who groan with praise. For the glory of your name we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.